guys. Welcome to Relatable. So we have a very fun, different, exciting show for you today. I am first going to be talking to Laura Trump, and we are going to be talking about uh, President Trump and his presidency and his campaign and his leadership over the past few months. And she is going to talk about the accomplishments that he uh, has done and, of course, kind of make a pitch to you for why he is our best bet in November. And I'm also going to be talking to Charlie Kirk. He has been a big advocate of the president and a big supporter of the president. And we are going to ask them questions about everything that's going on right now and uh, how we should be looking at how President Trump has handled these multiple crises over the past few months. Before I get into my conversation with Laura Trump, I do want to tell you guys about ExpressVPN. So I am so thankful for ExpressVPN. This is the VPN that I use that I have on all my devices and makes sure that all my information is private. And right now, while everyone is at home and there's so much chaos going on, this really is more important than ever. Even if you have incognito mode on your computer, that doesn't cut it. Your internet service provider can still see every single website that you have ever visited. That's why when I'm at home or really when I'm anywhere, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. So it doesn't matter where you get your internet from. It can be Verizon or, or Comcast, um, it, wherever it is, anywhere in uh, the U.S., they can legally sell your information to ad companies. But ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers, so your internet service provider cannot see the sites you visit. Uh, they also keep all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Uh, most of the time, I, I just don't even realize that ExpressVPN is on, but I feel secure knowing that it's running and in the background protecting my information. It's available on all your devices, even your smart TV. So there's really no excuse for you not to be using it, especially right now, your privacy and your data matter. They are important to protect. Uh, protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. You can visit my exclusive link that's expressvpn.com slash Ally, that's A-L-L-I-E, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That is expressvpn.com slash Ally to learn more and to get that extra three months free on your one-year package. Okay, without further ado, here is Laura Trump. Laura, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you got it. Great to be with you. So the rallies are about to start up. For the president, do you think yeah. that America is ready for that kind of enthusiasm and excitement with everything that's going on right now? I think we're desperate for that kind of enthusiasm and excitement. I mean, if anyone has ever been to a Trump rally, it's just filled with such positivity, such great spirit, love for America. So, I mean, I can't think of a better time to get everybody together to encourage people to love this country and come together as a community. Uh, we're so excited. I think that um, the president, probably more so than anyone, has been so looking forward to getting back to Trump rallies. So uh, we're excited to start again, and hopefully we'll be coming to a town near you very, very soon. The country has been through a lot. I don't think any of us could have ever anticipated or expected or planned for everything that we have been through since January. Can you tell me from your perspective uh, how President Trump has done in leading the country, a very divided country, through now multiple crises over a series of just a, a couple months? 
Yeah, it's been quite a 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think any of us saw this coming. Then I heard about murder hornets and I was like, oh my God, like what? It's never what are we stop. doing? What's happening? It's always, it's constant. Um, look, it's been a very challenging year for sure for so many Americans. Um, I don't think anyone has been untouched by what has happened in our country. So you start with coronavirus, which in January, the same exact day that Nancy Pelosi was handing out her impeachment pens, Donald Trump took the very bold step to stop travel coming from China to the United States. That saved, Ali, countless numbers of lives. I mean, who knows how many Americans, thousands and thousands of Americans arguably were saved by that step. Now, of course, he was criticized immediately by the Democrats. Joe Biden said it was xenophobic and fear-mongering to do such a thing. But thank God President Trump did that. Then he led us to the time where we had to sort of shut down the country. We were listening to the experts. We were doing what everybody said we should do. We flattened the curve out. And then you saw that we were on the way out of this. We just got the, the new jobs report, two and a half million new jobs added to this country last month when the experts predicted we were going to lose seven and a half million more. So, I mean, that's huge. They got it wrong by 10 million jobs. That's pretty amazing. Uh, and just when that happened, obviously, uh, we had this terrible incident with George Floyd, which uh, many people, I think, would say sparked what has uh, become protesting across the country, mostly peaceful, but sadly has been hijacked by some very radical groups whose only goal, goal is really to cause chaos and destruction. And I think ultimately their goal is to try and divide the country. Um, and look, the president has been very clear on this from the very beginning. Donald Trump has said that we have to have law and order in place. And sadly, you see that a lot of these cities that have been just completely brutalized by the looting and the arson are all Democrat-run cities. When Minneapolis said to the police department, hey, get out of there, don't really worry about our city anymore. I mean, you saw that it took just hours for things to devolve to such a level that it was an unrecognizable city in the United States of America, things on fire and, and being looted and people being attacked. It was horrible. Um, and so I think the president said, look, you need to get it together. And if you can't, then I'll have to step in. Uh, he had the National Guard ready to go and obviously some, uh, some places utilized them. But um, I think overall, listen, he's done a great job. Who could ever th say that they want to be the president of the United States in, in such a crazy time? But you gotta give the guy a hand for number one, setting up our economy so that we really weren't as badly hit as we otherwise could have been. We've already seen the jobs coming back. I think we're gonna see the June jobs report even you know, much higher than that. Hopefully it's like a V instead of you know, sort of a curve up with the jobs. Um, but on top of that, look, this, this president has always been out there fighting for every single American. And uh, what you have now in this country is a lot of black Americans saying, listen, we don't feel like we've been treated fairly. We still feel like there's injustice out there. Well, Donald Trump, from day one of his administration, took that very seriously. He signed into law the First Step Act, the first comprehensive prison reform in about 30 years in this country. It reversed the 1994 Clinton crime bill, which don't forget, Joe Biden was a big supporter of that. Uh, it disproportionately incarcerated young black men in this country. Donald Trump put forward opportunity zones and implemented those around the country, $100 billion of investment in our, our poorest communities and the forgotten about communities all across this country to revitalize them. And it was really taking hold and taking off, sadly, when coronavirus hit, 
but that will still continue. Uh, you see that this president has given more funding to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, than any president in history. So while the Democrats and the folks on the left want to talk about how they've been uh, trying to help with race relations and, and level the playing field, Donald Trump has actually done it. He doesn't need to talk about it. He's done it. So right. look, I think that we're going to come out of this. I think that uh, we do have uh, several months until the election. And I think people are going to start to see why it's so important to have a man like Donald Trump at the helm as you come out of coronavirus and as we want to get things back to normal in this country. And I think people are waking up to the reality that Donald Trump has been used as a scapegoat for the failings of the Democratic Party for a few years, but especially over the past few months. I mean, we saw not only tragically that a lot of the cities that were hit the hardest by coronavirus, not just because of the seriousness of the virus, but because of um, incompetence in government leaders or Democratic cities, some of the cities with the worst racial tensions and unfortunately, tragically, the worst police brutality and the worst relationship between uh, the police department and civilians are in Democratic run cities. The most violent cities are Democratic run cities and have been run by Democrats for several years. And a lot of these yeah. Democrats, a lot of these mayors and governors are turning around and saying this is all Donald Trump's fault. Um, I hope and I pray and, and I do think that I see this happening, that there are a lot of people waking up to that. I've even seen people and activists like Sean King, who is obviously on the left, right. a big Bernie supporter, saying, hang on just a second. All of these cities that we are seeing so much violence in right now and so uh, so such horrible tensions in right now are run by Democrats top to bottom. And so are, are you hopeful? I mean, not that we ever would want these tragic situations to happen at all, but are, are you hopeful that people are going to kind of wake up to the fact that really Democrats are just using Donald Trump as a distraction in a lot of ways from their own corruption and incompetence? Yeah, it's pretty amazing, Allie. Whenever you look at all of the things that they have accused Donald Trump of over the years, it turns out in many cases the Democrats themselves are doing them. You look back to Russia collusion, to the idea that the only way that Donald Trump and our campaign won the election in 2016 was that we colluded with Russia. Well, now, as we're seeing all the reports coming out, uh, we're finding out more and more information that suggests that it wasn't obviously the Trump campaign. We spent $30 million of taxpayer money in two years in the Mueller report to find that out. It was actually the DNC and the Clinton campaign that had ties to Russia. So whenever you look back at all of the things that they like to try and pin on Donald Trump, it turns out they're the ones doing them. And I think people are waking up to it. I mean, we've already seen since Donald Trump was elected movements like Blexit, like Walk Away, uh, like the Exodus movement. These are, are really powerful in this country because for so long, I think people were told, look, if you look a certain way, if you're of a certain gender, if you're of a certain sexual orientation, you can only vote for Democrats. And what people have very quickly realized is that Donald Trump is standing up for all Americans. He's fighting for everybody's shot at the American dream. The American people have been lied to by the mainstream media. They have been basically like a marketing arm for the DNC. And I think people are, are, are getting the picture now that what they've been told all along about Donald Trump hasn't been accurate. And if they step back for a second and get out of the hysteria of the mainstream media and they look at what Donald Trump was actually able to do in this country, they're realizing very, very quickly, 
uh, by the thousands and thousands of people, I think, uh, that Donald Trump has done a great job as our president, that he doesn't care what they say about him out there in the media. He's fighting for the American people every single day. And I think that's going to be reflected on November 3rd. The Democrats have overplayed their hand. They do this all the time. They're doing it now. I just heard last night that they are trying to cancel Paw Patrol. If you tell my two-and-a-half-year-old <laughs> son that, he's going to totally lose it. But this is the kind of uh, right. culture that they've, they've kind of pushed on the left. It's a cancel culture. It's if there's anything that we slightly think could be a problem, just cancel it all. We're talking about a cartoon of dogs that are policemen and firefighters. Are you guys crazy? Cancel Paw Patrol? Right. I mean, I, I just think people see this stuff and they say, this is not the United States of America. We're not supposed to just be canceling everything. Um, so it's, it's really going to be interesting to see the turnout on November 3rd. Look, I still maintain Donald Trump is going to get a historic number of votes from black Americans, from Latino Americans, and from women as we head towards November 3rd. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, let's talk about women for just a second, because that's the vast majority of this audience. Specifically, there are a lot of young working women, but also a lot of stay-at-home moms. Um, and yeah. that kind of suburban mom demographic is a demographic that Democrats have been gunning for for a long time, specifically in this election. And if you were to make kind of a pitch or if you were just sitting down, uh, you know, drinking coffee with one of these moms who is trying to decide who to vote for in November, what would what would your pitch be for Donald Trump to her? Well, look, Joe Biden has been in politics for four decades, and he really hasn't done anything to help this country. Donald Trump has been in politics for three and a half years. He's been in politics since the day he announced he was running for president of the United States. And what he really has done in this country is historic. This is uh, stuff that he's done in three years in office that for two terms in office, most presidents couldn't dream of doing. He revitalized and rebuilt our military. He has made sure that we are a safer country, that we actually have meaningful borders in this country, uh, that everybody, like I said a minute ago, has their fair shot at the American dream. Because whenever you renegotiate bad trade deals, whenever you give American companies a better shot at things, they're going to hire more employees. Uh, I just look, I, I know that there's this narrative out there that women don't support Donald Trump, but you can't be a woman in this country and look around at what has happened over the past couple of weeks. And you look at places like Seattle, where they literally have a zone, where they have these, these rogue people have kind of cordoned off this area, said, we are not part of the United States anymore. And the mayor is allowing this to happen. You see the violence, again, over the, the past two weeks that we've seen happen in this country under the Democrats' control, as you pointed out, in most of these cities. It is terrifying. To me, I, I'm scared for my kids. And look, I am very lucky that I, I live in a nicer area. It doesn't matter where you live. They could come to you. They could come to any area of this country. And I think it scares a lot of young moms out there. I think it scares a lot of women. I have friends who live in New York City, uh, single women who live alone. This has been a scary time for them, especially when you have talk of defunding police. If you could even imagine, Allie, how crazy it could get in, in a matter of hours if you defunded the police and the law enforcement in this country. These are the ideas on the left. And it's not the Democrat Party of 20 or 30 years ago. This is a very new, very radical Democrat Party. They are standing up for the wrong things. They are pushing the wrong things, again, like defunding police. Um, 
And Donald Trump is standing up for your rights as an American. Donald Trump is standing up and upholding the Constitution every day and saying, your rights mean something. Our founding fathers had a vision for this country, and I want to make sure that every American gets their freedoms in this country. And it feels to a lot of people like the Democrats want to just get rid of the Constitution, throw it out, don't worry about it. Um, it's really scary. And so there's so much at stake right now. Look, I want to know that this country works for my kids whenever they you know, get out of school one day and want to get a job, because it was really challenging for me. I graduated from college in 2005. The market was not good. The job market uh, prospects were not very good. Donald Trump is setting up our country now so that it doesn't just work for hopefully the eight years that he's in office, but that it works in the long term. When you look at things like renegotiating the trade deals with China, signing of the USMCA, these are going to be very impactful for a very, very long time in this country. So while the Democrats like to bully people and, and suggest that if you don't post certain things on your social media, you're a bad person, Donald Trump is actually enacting real change in this country, and it's keeping this country safe. It's making us the envy of the world again financially and, and job-wise. And, you know, we have a man who is putting America first. That is a great thing. We have a, a president who wants this country to win first and foremost, and that should be something that we all champion. Yes. And, and what people need to realize is that at least a segment of the Democratic Party, the far left segment of the Democratic Party that the rest of the party is capitulating to, uh, they want unrest. They want anarchy. They want you to be scared. They want you to be uneasy. They want you to feel perpetually victimized because those are all of the arguments and the foundations that they have built for the socialist revolution that they want. And so uh, they don't want you to feel secure. So they don't want law and order. Right. They don't want you to feel economically stable because economic uh, instability and personal instability and insecurity, all of these things, they believe, build the argument for the new society that the far left segment of the Democratic Party, which is taking over the whole party, want. And so there is only one party. I'm not saying the entire Republican Party is perfect. I think that uh, your father-in-law would uh, agree with that. But there is one party who has an interest, has a personal vested interest in success, in security, in law and order, in ending this uh, chaos. And women, I mean, people of all kinds, but women need to be able to distinguish that. And it's not only that, it's also the issue for, I know a lot of people in my audience is the issue uh, of abortion and just how yeah. radical Democrats have become on that, that it once was, you know, 20 years ago, safe, legal and rare. Now, it's through nine months on demand without apology. And what I what I want women to remember is that there is exactly one party, one presidential candidate who has ever said anything in the way or done anything in the way of protecting those very vulnerable unborn children who are included in the in the groups of forgotten Americans that your father and his administration or your father in law and his administration represent. Yeah, you're exactly right. Look, this president um, I think arguably has been the most pro-life president in modern history. And look, he spoke at the, the March for Life. He's the first president to ever do that. He uh, took federal funding away from Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look, Allie, at what the Democrats, to your point, are trying to, to implement and, and the way they feel about abortion, 40-week abortions, are you guys kidding me? Anyone out there that is a mom that has had gone into the doctor and seen whenever they, they do the ultrasound, the, the baby that lives inside your body, that baby is alive. They are alive 
from like six, they're alive from the inception, but at six weeks old, you can see a heartbeat. You're telling me that at 40 weeks, when a viable pregnancy, when a baby is fully able to live outside of the body, we're gonna kill it? This is, it's insanity. It doesn't get talked about enough, but thank God for President Trump. He stands up for the rights of all American born and unborn, because guess what? They have a life too. It's very uh, scary, I think, to see that sort of thing as well for people out there, um, especially uh, again mothers who who you can't you can't be changed not like not changed by that. Right. Whenever you go in and and you go to the doctor for the first time, I remember the experience I had and my husband had too, and it changes your life and it it changes a lot of people's views on that. And yep. thank God we have a president that's standing up for that, too. Yep. And people say you mentioned, you know, 40 weeks. People say, oh, well, you know, that never happens. Well, we heard the governor of Virginia, Democratic governor oh. of Virginia, Ralph Northam, say that that's possible. Um, you can go listen to the tape on that if you don't. But if you and the audience don't believe me. Uh, and if that never happened, then they wouldn't be trying so hard, especially in places like New York or New Mexico or Illinois, to make sure that uh, those kinds of abortions are legal. If they never happen, uh, then you shouldn't have any problem with uh making them illegal. Um, and there's another issue that I know a lot of people listening to this care about, and that is the issue of religious liberty. They have seen over the past few months, especially Democratic politicians, but even some Republicans saying church is not essential. You can't gather, even if you're socially distancing, we do not trust churches to be able to make the right decisions for their congregants. So you can't go uh, You can't go to church and, and worship freely together. We might even put you in jail. We might fine you if you do that. And now we're watching hundreds of thousands of people slam together without masks. And that apparently is essential. But people exercising their First Amendment right uh, to worship their God freely, that apparently is not essential. Can you tell me um, how President Trump has, has exemplified his, uh, his appreciation and his desire to protect that First Amendment right? Yeah, well, I think what you're talking about, first of all, is the, the hypocrisy knows no limits, I think, on the left. And I want everybody to pay very close attention here, because if you wondered what the Democrats had in store, look at what they did here. They told us for three plus months that you can't go to church, you can't go to work, you have to lock everything down. They arrested people for trying to go to work. The woman that was in Texas who tried to go to her hair salon so that she could literally make money to feed her children, got arrested. But then you have people out there, they flipped the script in about 24 hours and said, wait a minute, we're gonna let thousands of people out in the streets together, like you just said, Allie, no masks, no worry about it. We're all for the protests, get out there and do it. Well, what happened? You just arrested people for trying to go to work and, and do things safely, like with a mask. Yeah, you're not even locking up the people that are setting fires to small businesses, de destroying people's lives. This president has been very, very clear that he is standing up very strongly for your First Amendment rights and religious freedom across this country. You see what has happened in so many of these schools. They're trying to take out, take God totally out of everything. These are principles on which this country was founded. And you know what? We should be standing up and saluting our flag and putting our hand over our heart when we hear the national anthem. Those are our are, are principal things that I think all Americans, you know, it brings us together. I remember doing that in school. You say the Pledge of Allegiance, you stand up, put your hand over your heart. But President Trump has been looking out for 
religious liberties and religious freedoms from day one of his administration. And it's so funny because they try and characterize him as a guy that, that doesn't care, that, that doesn't really care about religion or God. And they, of course, tried to hit him for going over to St. John's Church uh, with the Bible. That was a big problem for them. But I guess it wasn't a problem that somebody actually tried to burn it down right. the night before. So the hypocrisy here is very clear to so many people. But rest assured, Donald Trump is standing up for your freedom to practice your religion uh, in the United States of America, because you know what? It is our First Amendment right. And we've got I mean, that is the foundation and principle of this country. Right. And I just want to clarify that you and I both support the First Amendment right to peacefully protest as well. Yeah, but what we're of course. pointing out, what we are pointing out is the hypocrisy of Democrats saying, well, you can't practice one part of the First Amendment, which is worshiping freely. But you can absolutely practice another part of the First Amendment, which is peacefully protesting um, and even not even just peacefully protesting, but also rioting. So you you can get yeah. in trouble for going to church, but not burning it down. And I just hope people are able to see that dichotomy. Um, is there any just final words that you can give everyone, any encouragement or anywhere you want to send them for more information? Yeah, well, I would encourage everybody to tune in seven nights a week. We have what we call Team Trump Online. Uh, 8 p.m. You can uh, find it across all of our social media platforms at the campaign. On Wednesday nights, Allie, we started what we call The Right View. Uh, this is our take on, you might have heard of the show, The View. We didn't feel like those ladies necessarily represented the views of all women in this country. So it's myself, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Katrina Pearson, and Mercedes Schlapp. And every Wednesday night at 8 p.m., we have The Right View. Um, and look, I just want to tell everybody, we all at the end of the day need to remember, again, we're all Americans, that we are all in this together, and we will see this through. We overcome everything, every challenge that's put in front of us, and uh, this will be no different. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for taking the time to talk to us. You got it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation. Now I am going to talk to my friend, Charlie Kirk. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Allie. Honored to be here. So you've gotten into, which you are very used to, uh, some controversial waters over the past couple weeks or so as uh, all this stuff is going on around us, America literally, literally burning to the ground. And you've kind of shared what you think is an important counter narrative uh, about the facts about police brutality and systemic racism. Can you kind of summarize some of the posts and videos that you've been putting out that have caused such a stir? Yeah, um, stirs, I guess, is something I'm used to at this point. Um, I, I first say from the outset that uh, the, the death of George Floyd was a tragedy, and I, I hope the police officer is held to the fullest extent of the law. And I've said that in every single video, and I will continue to say that. And I'm not minimizing that, but I'm also trying to contribute to the conversation. Uh, is this a trend? Is this statistically happening at the rate at which the media is representing it? So I early on started to talk about actually how police officers have saved hundreds of thousands of people's lives, especially let's just take about in New York City, for example, uh, in the early 1990s, about 2200 individuals, mostly Hispanic and black individuals, by the way, were, were dying every single year. Uh, 2200 murders. Think about that, Ali. 2200 people in the streets of New York. Mayor Giuliani does a full offensive of hiring more police officers using data tracking, um, more uh, more innovative methods. And the murders went down to 300 a year. So that's about 1,900 black and Hispanic individuals year over year that were not being killed in the streets uh, thanks to policing measures. You multiply that over a couple decades, and maybe they have children, they have grandchildren. You're talking about tens of thousands of people 
that are living because of police officers just in New York City. Right. And so I was very disappointed about how quickly the national conversation went from an understandable remembrance and understand kind of just conversation around what happened in that particular incident to just indicting all of law enforcement. And right. so then I also got really upset when I started to see people that I grew up with in the suburbs of Chicago who have benefited from police protection their entire life all of a sudden post these black squares and they have no understanding whatsoever of the movement that is pushing that forward and the lie that America is systemically racist. And so I'm going to say that today. I'm going to say it tomorrow. I'm never going to bow to the mob. And I will do that also with acknowledging that George Floyd was murdered and that person should be held accountable. I think you can do those things simultaneously without surrendering to the mob and paying your penance to the group humiliation religion of the left. But why is it that so many people seem to not be able to do that simultaneously? Why is it that if we accept that it was an unjust death from what we know and from what we see and that it was a tragedy, that he was made in the image of God and that in and of itself is enough to be sad about and to even be outraged about? I was outraged when I saw uh, the video and even asking questions. Okay, does this happen a lot in Minneapolis? Why is it that we can't take that critical approach and very serious approach? Why does it have to turn into only Almost a cultural and political revolution is what we're seeing right now with Christians, with even maybe some conservatives jumping on board. How did that happen? Well, we, we lack courage and we lack clarity of thought. And I mean, you say it best. You have to ask yourself the question, is this actually happening every single day? And so I go on social media and I see left wing activists and I see activist members of our media saying that this is a epidemic. It's interesting how they chose that word in this time in American history. But they say this is an epidemic. Uh, unarmed black men are being gunned down in the streets at record rates. And you look at the numbers. I mean, the Washington Post data showed last year before they updated it in the last couple of weeks, which is interesting, the last couple of weeks with the last week, which is interesting how they update it as soon as people start using it. But originally they said 10 uh, unarmed black men were killed in 2019. And now they have said um, they've updated it and they've said that 15 unarmed black men died last year. Now, understand, hmm. Ali, if you look at the definition of unarmed black man, it's very questionable. Okay, some of these people said they had weapons. Some of these people were grabbing for the officer's weapon. But let's take it at face value. Let's say all 15 now were tragedies and were not acceptable. Okay, 385 million police interactions happen every single year in America. 385 million and 15 unarmed black men die. 52 police officers were killed last year in 2019. Twice as many black police officers have died in the last two weeks than unarmed black men. David Dorn and Patrick Underwood. Do you think Black Lives Matter activists know those two names? Right. Do you think they know the names of the 179 individuals that have been shot due to black on black crime in Chicago, Atlanta and Philadelphia? So I think if we're serious about having this conversation about unjust death in America, we can't allow an entire emotive quasi pathological conversation to hijack the American conversation, to hijack the entire narrative in our right. country. And I think it's, it's very dangerous. And also it leads us to a place that does not create good public policy and divides right. the country unnecessarily. Something I've been really sad about is seeing women and especially Christian women say that it is callous to talk about those facts and to talk about the statistics or to bring up the side of the police officers at all, the good police officers, because it is not showing uh, 
proper uh, compassion or it's not showing enough sadness surrounding the tragedy. But what I want people to understand is that you don't bring up statistics to say, oh, no bad people exist or no bad cops exist or we can't talk about racism ever. It's because exactly what you said. If we allow narratives to go unchecked without talking about statistics and facts, that's how people, especially on the left, build public policy. They build public policies off of public narratives. And if that public narrative is a lie, then you've got bad public policy that affects the lives of people. And we're already seeing that in calls for abolishing the police. Who do you think is going to be affected by abolishing the police? Not even primarily me and you, but women and children, disabled people, elderly people, and poor communities. Where's the compassion? Where are the activist groups for those people? Yeah, it's well said, Allie. And so it's going to the Ferguson, the Ferguson effect is going to happen, which after Ferguson, Missouri, with the lie that was peddled by the media that they said Michael Brown put his hands up and said, hands up, don't shoot. Never happened. Did not happen. It's been proven through witness testimony and also through an autopsy that that did not happen. Um, But still, that lie uh, became a narrative within the media. And the Ferguson effect in Ferguson, Missouri ensued, which essentially is the police retreated. People said, we don't want the police fine. Crime went up. Rapes went up. Violent arrest went up. Um, Violent crime, I should say, went up. Uh, Every every sort of category of crime went up imaginable. And so as a byproduct of that, who who actually were the ones suffering? The in, people in black communities. And so that as soon as this happened, Ali, I said, this is a bad day for black America. It's a bad day because now police officers, which are, by the way, mostly minority majority police forces are going to be saying, we don't want the police here. We don't want the police in our communities, which and again, the other I want to also kind of put a sidestep tangent on this because you and I are, are both outspoken Christians and I've gone after these you know, woke Christians that think that they have stumbled into an issue that makes them seem correct, where you have these pastors with these massive social media followings putting black squares. And one in particular said, this is the biggest, this is the biggest epidemic happening in America right now. He used the word epidemic, which again, such a bizarre use of language when you're actually going through Mm. an epidemic. Mm -hmm. But, and I've never seen him post once about how 300,000 black babies are aborted every single year. Not once. I mean, and, and that that is the absolute definition of the stripping of innocence of those that can't defend themselves. That's the absolute definition of unarmed is the crisis of abortion in the black community, where upwards of 40 percent of all the abortions in America are by three percent of the population, which are infant bearing black women. Mm-hmm. Uh, abortions way out they are, they are far outside of the proportion of population towards the black community and towards any other community. And yet Black Lives Matter wants more abortions. In fact, they they stand side by side with Planned Parenthood. And so um, I think it's very important for Christians out there to understand you could strike a healthy balance between acknowledging a tragedy, but also standing for truth. There's nothing indelicate. There's nothing abrasive about lovingly and compassionately uh, articulating what is actually happening in the world around data, science, and statistics. And I think we need more Christians to do that. And our lack of willingness to engage in that kind of discussion uh, will be the downfall of our uh, of our entire country. And a lack of discussion about any real solutions. People point to, and I think you actually did uh, a response to a video that's been going around. It's a very well-made video about what systemic racism looks like, the inequalities in graduation rates and how much uh, wealth is being owned by white families versus black families. And that is, that's what a lot of people point to when they say, okay, America is systemically, endemically racist, and there's nothing we can really do to change it. Um, well, what is what would you say some of the solutions are? If you don't want to point to systemic racism, you could still say those are problems that are happening. What would you say that we could 
discuss as solutions to help minority communities. Yeah, and we want to be really uh, specific with our language, right? So saying that there are problems in the black community and then also saying it's not because of systemic racism, it, you could still say those two things. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, when you say that you don't believe in systemic racism, it doesn't mean you're saying there are no problems in black America. It's or saying that, that there's maybe no there's racism something... anywhere ever. Yeah. And so, but there's also other reasons why maybe black America is not succeeding outside of racism. In fact, I think it is so intellectually lazy to blame every single problem. And I think it's it's so wrong and dangerous to say, well, every problem in the black community is because of racism. So, for example, a black child that is raised by a mom and a dad has a higher likelihood of succeeding than a white kid that is just raised by a single mother. So it's not systemic racism. It's systemic fatherlessness. That's what's really happening in the black community. Seventy seven percent of black children are born without a father in the home. And so if you take up until where the welfare state came in, the, the, the Great Society program by Lyndon Baines Johnson, the fatherless rate, fatherless rate was about 22 percent, more or less, in 1965. And so then post-Great Society went up to 75 percent. So as America got less racist, black fathers got removed from the home. And so let's pretend for a second that the, the casualty and the unspeakable byproduct of segregation, Democrat policies of Jim Crow and slavery was 22% fatherlessness. Let's just accept that. Okay, then how did it go from 22% to 75% as America got less racist, blacks got into political office, we elect the black president, have a black attorney general, blacks end up, you know, basically 4,000 black individuals run for public office and win. How is it that we got less racist in every single aspect imaginable? We had the first black billionaire, the black CEOs, okay, all those things. How did the black fatherlessness rate go up? It's because we subsidized fatherlessness. We actually send checks to mothers to have children and not get married. And that's with the Great Society program. And so I'm a big believer in rebuilding the family. And if anyone out there still supports Black Lives Matter, the movement, Ali, you go to blacklivesmatter.com. You know what it says right there? They says, and I, I could read it right here. We want to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. Right. That's, that's their goal. They want less fathers. Right. They want less built families. Well, also, if you keep reading that, they will say, you know, to the extent that mothers and parents are comfortable, they will never say fathers on their website. They'll talk about That's families. Right. They talk about mothers. They'll say parents. They will not say fathers when that is the biggest issue that that is in in all communities. Like you said, the rate is disproportionately, unfortunately high in the black community. But fatherlessness uh, affects individuals negatively, no matter what the color of your skin is. I mean, that's just data. You have a higher rate of uh, not you have a lower likelihood of graduating from high school, higher rates of depression, of suicide, of teen pregnancy, of teen uh, being a, a juvenile delinquent, and then, uh, you know, incarceration. All of these things that are very cyclical in nature um, can be attributed, maybe not solely, but largely to fatherlessness. But we don't want to have that conversation. It seems like too many people aren't ready to have that conversation. Instead, we have very nebulous, unspecific, unsolved conversations about systemic racism and Unfortunately, so many in the church are aiding and abetting a counterproductive conversation about this. That's right. And I do not see the church through any of their advocacy. Generally, some pastors are great. And I, call, I, I mention them in my videos that I know personally that I've come across that have courage. Rob McCoy, Jack Hibbs and Jerry Falwell Jr. from Liberty. Obviously, I'm sporting the, the gear. There, there's a couple that are out there in the Christian world that stand for truth and have courage. But if the church was serious about solving these problems, there's three there's three policy prescriptions. 
that Black Lives Matter opposes that would assuredly improve the black community. Number one, school choice for black kids. Break up the Democrat-controlled teacher union cartel and allow parents and families to use tax dollars to go to functioning schools, parochial schools, charter schools, school choice for black kids. Five words that could change America for the better. Number two, fatherlessness. Whatever it takes, whatever policy has proven to get fathers back in the home. So this has created weak and honestly feckless and spineless men that think they can impregnate women and abdicate their responsibility. And it has created overburdened, heroic single mothers that are not able to, um, I shouldn't say not able, that's not fair, but the data shows it is less likely for them to be able to build a family with children that are going to be able to succeed at the same levels as a nuclear family. I think that's a better and fairer way to say it. And the third thing that Black Lives Matter opposes is more police. And and this is just something they, they want to abolish the police, but we need more police. Now, if you want those police to be mostly minority members, that's fine. I, I think that's actually a fair thing, that if you want a the black police force in the black community to be mostly black, fine. But that's not a reason to abolish the police, right? So what went from a maybe a meaningful conversation, alley where I could have sympathized a little bit of, okay, more body cams and maybe get rid of chokeholds. Okay, like maybe I could all of a sudden like, oh, let's get rid of the, the entire police force. Like that is insane. And right. I will stand up against that. And anyone who dares, by the way, corporate America, the churches, they're standing next to this stuff. Right. And for these churches, who are you going to call <laughs> right. if someone comes after your, I mean, your, your church, your, I mean, not, obviously not the police. So yeah. I, uh, I, I think that it's a, uh, it's, well, it's an outrageous conversation. I think that we're seeing that it unfortunately, very tragically, has gotten detached from being angry about the incident with George Floyd to becoming a cultural and political and social revolution that is it's established on this faulty idea that we know as Christians is not true about human nature, that humans are inherently noble. And if you take away their oppressors, so social oppressors like the police, then they'll make good decisions and criminals won't commit crimes anymore. They don't believe that people do evil things think simply for the sake of evil. They believe that most people commit crimes so based on some unmet need. It's like this Rousseau idea of human nature. But leftists right. always get human. Yes. Yeah. Uh, leftists always get human nature wrong. They always do. It's part of why communism never works, because human nature wants to own property, wants to produce. It understands supply and demand. Um, and we're seeing that again with the abolition of the police, or at least that movement, the idea that crime is just going to stop. Um, I, I want to ask you quickly how you think Donald Trump has led through this crisis and really these crises over the past few months. Yeah, it's been a very difficult hand he's been dealt. And I think he has a great opportunity right now. I think he's done great. And I think he has a great opportunity. He's got to play offense. And he's at his best when he's playing offense and making the left compete on his terms. And so I think he should do the greatest rollout of educational choice in American history, a Marshall Plan. Uh, since we're into the business now of spending trillions of dollars we don't have, how about he does a 50 to $100 billion plan for educational choice in our inner cities to put, the tra- to put charter schools and private schools and homeschooling back in the forefront of the American conversation and say, hey, if you go to one of the 13 Baltimore schools that are basically all black where they can't find one kid that can read or do math at grade level, you're allowed to leave that school and go to a private school with that money. That would be so unbelievably popular, Allie. Number two is a serious conversation about black fatherlessness. And then I think he has to, in my opinion, I think he has to sign the Insurrection Act and go up against these white armed liberals that have decided to try to occupy the streets of Seattle and Portland. This is a civil war action that they are putting. And I, I mean, 
I'm not saying that lightly. If you take over the streets of America and you think you can self-police, that is the role of the federal government to come in if the states cannot handle themselves. And Jay Inslee has literally said he doesn't even know about it. It yeah. is the textbook de definition of insurrection. And so I believe that has to be absolutely stopped instantaneously. Yeah. How do you think he's done so far? Do you think that he's been pretty good on, on, on rhetoric and the decisions that he's made, not just in this, but also through coronavirus? Yeah, I think he's done well. And it's important to realize that the media will never cover what he has done fairly. Uh, he handled the virus, I think, tremendously well from a supply chain issue standpoint. And I think correctly calling out the Chinese. He left the, these lockdowns to the states, as evidenced by how South Dakota correctly handled uh, the lockdown. I was never pro-lockdown. I was a skeptic towards lockdowns. And the president allowed the states to do it. He offered guidelines. He said, hey, I believe in federalism. And um, when I say I was not locked down, I was not mass draconian lockdown advocate. OK, I understand that certain areas should have been shielded. But, Allie, if we're serious about it, 60 percent of coronavirus deaths were in New York City, somewhere around 45 to 50 percent were nursing homes. This was a highly specific virus that did not mostly impact young people. And we shut down schools and we had more people die of suicides than of the coronavirus in California. And so I think mm -hmm. that it would be a mistake not to self-analyze and self-reflect, were these lockdowns actually a good decision? And it is of my conjecture that it was a mistake to do it to the extent that we did in a lot of these states. And I do not I do not place that at the feet of the president because uh, he allowed the states to operate however they saw fit. Are you feeling optimistic about President Trump in November? Yes, there's still there's still a lot of uncertainty. And Look, I'm not the type of person that thinks we're going to win no matter what. I always like to play like we're 10 points down. Um, but I also see that the left has a bloodthirstiness to them that I've never seen before, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Um, it seems like they want this more than anything they've ever wanted in the history of my time doing politics. Right. Um, they're willing to push the boundaries of civil discussion. They're willing to cancel people, get extremely violent, as we have seen. And so I think that we as conservatives have to almost regroup and regather and find the kind of discussion, the dividing lines that we want to set the rules of engagement. Um, I think some of that is naturally happening, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Let's put it that way going into November. I think the dichotomy has never been more clear between the right and the left. And, you know, I have my own problems with the Republican Party. Certainly don't think every Republican politician is perfect by any means. But right now you have one party that is for insurrection, that is for abortion through 40 weeks of pregnancy, that is not for any kind of law and order, not for any kind of border policy, not for anything that has made this country orderly and successful and moral and good. Um, and then you have another party and all of their imperfection that cares about the things that Christians care about, that cares about security, that cares about law and order, uh, that cares about sovereignty of the nation, that cares uh, about religious liberty and free speech and all of the things that Christians should care about and have uh, helped make this country great. And if there are things in which we can meet in the middle between Republicans and Democrats, problems we want to solve together, I think that's wonderful and great. But right now, it's hard to find any common ground when the two parties are so far apart. I completely agree. And that saddens me. But we have to recognize that, Allie. And I mean, when you have people, you have an entire party that supports post-birth abortion, that even uh, supports third third term abortion, that supports open borders and is OK with the rioters and the anarchists. I do honestly ask the question, at what point are we going to agree on anything? Mm -hmm. I know that sounds sad, but it's just 
it's a it's a true indication of what's happening. I am a very vocal supporter of the president, and I'm also you know a very vocal supporter of the policies he's putting in place, especially for life and for faith and for freedom and for individual initiative. And and look, I think that it's a very important moment for us to recognize the philosophical differences. And you you mentioned it; it's so brilliant, Allie, where you said. Now we're going to have a discussion on original sin. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you believe right. in original sin or not? That's basically the conversation, which interestingly enough is actually a healthier conversation to have than high taxes or low taxes. Right. It's actually a. Let's get this down is actually, to it. Yeah, it's the probably the most important philosophical conversation you can have around humanity. Are we good by nature or not? Right. And I actually always start my campus talks that way. And I'm glad that we're going to have the left admit that. They think human beings are great and everything around us makes us impure. I think anyone who has studied human history knows that not to be true. Right. And we're already seeing that in the Seattle Autonomous Zone or whatever it's called. They're already having to police their own people. Utopias don't work. But thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. And if there's anywhere you want to send people, uh, any website or resources, let, let them know. Yeah. Uh, check out The Charlie Kirk Show. Uh, if you guys want to type it in, hit subscribe and uh Check out Liberty University. We're in, the, we're in the gear, Falkirk Center for Faith and Liberty, and just God bless our great country. Thanks so much. 